Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One and Forum, the young and hip division of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs> they they told here. me not to shave for yeah, three right, days. Yeah, you're definitely young, and, young hip, and hip. Right here. You're getting it both, the full package. Uh, my guest today is Shia Gassi, CEO of Better Place. His ambition is to transform the international auto industry and reduce carbon pollution. How? By building a network of stations that charge and swap batteries for electric automobiles. He's teamed up with an established car company, Renault Nissan, and an emerging automaker, Chi Ray, from, from China. And his firm recently received a $350 million investment from HSBC, Morgan Stanley, and other investors. His vision is bold, disruptive, and he's pursuing a model and technology that's very different from most other automakers. Will battery swapping take hold in the United States, or will it be just a niche? Let's hear from Shia Gassi. Please welcome him to Climate One and Inform. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for coming. Uh, so oil continues to gush into the Gulf of Mexico. How is that affecting the climate and the prospects for a transition from petroleum to electric vehicles? I think it was uh, – I'll quote John Stewart because, uh, you know, you can trust whatever John says as, as real news. But um, he said, we, you know, in, uh, in 2001, uh, we said we're going to get off oil um, and in 2005, we said we're uh, 2006. I think the president came up and said we really need to get off oil because we got two wars now in the Middle East, and we didn't do anything. And now we have two wars and a gushing well, and now we're going to get off oil. Um, what most people don't understand is the is the bigger macro scope. Um, between 2001 and 2008, at the peak of price, 147. Every American family got assessed uh, an oil tax of $1,900 uh, per year. Uh, that oil tax is basically assessed by China because they're growing the number of cars, and as a result of that, the last barrel costs more. $1,900 is uh, six times more than the uh, credit, the tax credit that was given back by the administration, the 300 bucks. Uh, and $1,900 is what caused the mortgage market to basically collapse on itself. Uh, since then, we had uh, an economic downfall, and the G20 in one year had put 1.6 trillion 
uh, dollars into the system in various different stimulus packages. And it's, the interesting number is that from that moment, $147 in one year, because the price went down to 37 at some point, um, the same G20 saved $1.6 trillion in oil bills. Um, funny how we don't connect the dots uh, when the numbers match. And the reality is, macro-wise, you know, whether you believe in end of oil or not, whether you believe in climate change, whether you believe in, in anything, numbers just they add up. Um, and we're, we're crashing down towards an economic disaster on oil. And if we don't disconnect between um, jobs and oil, which is what we're seeing in the U.S., the only thing that reduces the amount of oil we consume is unemployment. Because if you're employed, you've got to drive. And so if we don't disconnect between the two, we're going to get employment to come back and the price of oil is going to go up. And so it's one of those things that you sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And the only way we disconnect is we've got to get off oil fast enough. Now, the number is astonishing. China's going to add 20 million cars this year. Um, every 20 cars um, add a demand for one, for every 20 cars is one barrel a day. So 20 million cars is 1 million barrels a day. Um, the following year, if they continue that growth, there's somewhere around 25 to 30 million new cars on the road. The following year, it's 35 to 40 million cars on the road. So when you're looking at, at you know, China's adding about 3 to 4 million barrels a day additional demand in the next three years. By the way, 4 million barrels a day is all the known um, reserves that are, the spigots are closed. That's just China in the next two years. So macro-wise, we, we don't have a lot of time, and we've got to really solve this thing very, very fast. And the only way to solve it is to give people something else they can drive, which is um, cheaper and more convenient than a gasoline car. That's how we started. And when oil spiked in 2008, we saw people taking their SUVs in and saying, give me that hybrid. And then when oil prices went down, they started hanging on to those SUVs and not going to the hybrid. So what does that tell you about the human beings' ability to change and their short-term sight focus on, on the immediate economic incentive? That's why they're called consumers. They consume. Um, if you price something low, they will consume more of it. And if you uh, price it high, they will consume less of it. And it, at the end of the day, we know one very, very simple thing. Um, they, they make a decision um, at day of purchase of the car, and then they get addicted. And whatever that car will consume, they'll consume it once a week, roughly, and um, the price almost doesn't make any difference. I mean, most amazing thing is, you're right, the purchase behavior of what car changed at about $4, mm-hmm. uh, $4 a gallon. Um, the amount of um, oil, the amount of, of gasoline consumed went down between $1 a, bar- a gallon and $4 a gallon in the U.S., the, the decrease was less than 4% per, per person, per, per driver, less than 4%. Um, at $4, something big happened. Um, Starbucks shares went down because people started saying, uh, I'm paying so much for the gasoline on the way into, into work, I'll stop you uh, drinking coffee which is an alternative uh, liquid, as you can obviously see, to gasoline. Um, but nobody stopped driving because you had to go to work. And so you, you took your gallon on the way in and a gallon on the way back, and that was it, and you had to go to work. Now, you have to remember that you have to feed consumers with the right product. 
And, and the right product is, is really um, something that we all, we all understand. It's fairly easy. Give me a car that is cheaper on day of purchase, that is more convenient than my gasoline car, and I'm willing to pay as much as gasoline to drive it per mile. And yet every alternative vehicle um, in the market to date came in and said, you have to give up convenient. So either it's a two-seater or it's slow or it's uh, not a car you want to pick a date in or, um, uh, you know, you give up something and you have to pay more. You have to pay for the battery and you have to pay for hybrid engines. You have to pay more. And then you save money on a per-mile basis because you don't pay gasoline. You pay sort of two cents per mile on electricity or something like that. But, um, and it was the exact opposite of what consumers wanted. They wanted cheap at purchase. And we're the first ones who actually came in and said, the problem is to give me a car that will be cheaper when I go to the dealership. And we believe the mark needs to be about between three dollars and $5,000 cheaper than the gasoline car. Why? Because... We saw what happened to hybrids. Hybrids were about three dollars to $5,000 more expensive, and they only made 1% of the, the car market. So imagine if a hybrid was actually three dollars to $5,000 cheaper, would it make 99% of the car market? And that's the hypothesis, that if you actually made the car cheaper, and that's where we started. That's the whole premise. And how about maintenance? One of the dirty little secrets of the car industry is that car companies don't make as much money selling cars. They make, the dealers make money on servicing those cars. And an internal combustion engine car has 6,000 more parts than an electric car. There's a lot less to go wrong. So presumably the maintenance is going to be a lot lower. So yeah. is that part of the equation? You know, Henry Ford actually devised it. Sell them the car cheap and then sell them the spare parts over the life of the car and make the life of the car long enough that... They'll buy enough spare parts to, to pay back for... I mean, it's an amazing industry. Once you get into it, because I was in software, it was a different industry. But if you think about an industry where they make the money when the product breaks, but all the engineers work so that the product will never break, and the, and the business guys in the entire car industry keep telling us that they don't understand our business model. And I say, yeah, you're right. We make the money when the car runs. Um, and we believe that's where the industry is going to go to. I mean, at the end of the day, you need to create some sort of um, a continuous revenue stream from the car as it goes, even for the car maker. And that's part of the proposition that we've made to the car industry, um, that we will share with them some, you know, some of the mileage um, fee that we collect, which no gas station ever paid them. I, you don't see BP send you a check when you buy a new car saying, thank you for subscribing to our services for the next 15 years. Uh, but that's part of what we offer to the market, and that we will we create some sort of a cross-subsidy between the, the miles and the car. So you came out of software. I mean, total cost of ownership is one of the concepts in the IT industry. What's the total cost of ownership, or what's the unit cost per mile of an electric car versus the gasoline uh, alternative? I think that's the fundamental... Um, calculation that most people didn't make. They always looked at the components and they looked at the cost of the car, including the battery. We came in and said, and that's the business model of innovation, if you want, that we brought in. We, we, first thing we said is you have to separate between the car and the battery to create the technological disruption that allows the car, an electric car, to be more convenient than a gasoline car. Because if, if I always drive 100 miles and then I have to stop and wait for a half hour or an hour, or two hours, which sort of the older technologies. And everybody who tells you there's going to be fast chargers, fast chargers are sort of half hour. Um, and if you imagine driving on the 5 from L.A. to San Francisco, 
And then every hundred miles stopping for a half hour. That's if nobody has stopped before you at that spot. Uh, it's sort of Greyhound bus, right? And we said, no, if the worst you can have is a one-minute swap or a two-minute swap so that you can keep on going. And then if you do that every two, three weeks and you stop sort of, you know, once, it's okay. It's better than what I do with my gas station because um, you can charge home and work. That technology disruption also led to a business model disruption, and that's that we look at battery as part of the cost of a mile, not as part of the cost of the car. Mm-hmm. The electric car without a battery is cheaper than a gasoline car because it has less parts. And it's sort of like a plasma screen or the phones or the, whatever you guys are holding in your hands. Uh, you know, that, that cell phone, without the camera, without the touchscreen and the apps and everything else, used to cost you know, thousands of dollars. The first one was, you know, I think, a million dollars to make. And they become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the more you make, the cheaper they become. Um, and so the electric cars down the road enjoy a cost benefit, tremendous cost benefit to a gasoline car. Um, the battery, interestingly enough, if you amortize it over the life of the battery, is already cheaper than oil. I'm, I'm not going to bore you with the calculation, but batteries plus electrons today are roughly equivalent to $2.5 gallon. Now, it doesn't seem like a huge advantage because, you know, you see $3.5 or $3.20 outside. But in Europe, it's 7 bucks. So $7.5, bucks is $5 margin in between. Now, the interesting part about it is that battery gets better and better and better all the time. Five years from now, we're at a buck a gallon equivalent. Ten years from now, we're at about 50 cents a gallon equivalent. And the price of oil keeps going up, and the price of batteries keep going down, and the length of life of batteries is, going, is improving. And so what happens is the margin improves. Now, what became so menacing to the industry is we came in and said, we, we don't want to be greedy. So we know what our margin needs to be, and whatever is left, we're going to give back to the driver on the day of purchase of the car. And we're going to make the car cheaper. So the, the higher the price of gasoline, the higher the price of oil, the cheaper the price of the battery, the cheaper the electric car will be because we're going to give you a rebate. Now, you all know it because you're holding one of these in your, in your pocket. It's called a cell phone. The rebate doesn't make the cell phone cheaper. It just makes it cheaper to consume. And no oil company can give you a rebate for buying a gasoline car. And that created the big disruption in the market. And there's another aspect of the swappable battery, which you guys explained to me, which is that because the technology is changing so quickly that if you buy another electric vehicle today, you're stuck with that 2010 battery technology for the life of that car. Whereas in this case, as batteries change and get more efficient energy density, et cetera, you're introducing the updated technology into the stream. But there's a flip side to that, too, which is you've got to standardize those things, which could be very complex. As the batteries change, you've got to have the, um, standardize the batteries across different auto platforms and different changing stations, right? So, so two things. One, you're absolutely right. If, um, it's one of the funny things about it is the industry keeps telling you, we have this great electric car coming out in 2012. By the way, we're going to have a much better battery two years later. Now, everybody who buys a car knows that you don't buy a car you can't sell. Right? So most people buy a car and they assume they're going to sell it three, four years later. So what they tell you is, buy this car you'll never be able to sell. And if you wait two years, you're going to be able to buy a better car you can't sell. 
Um, and we keep saying, well, hold on. If you separate it between the car and the battery, then you can buy that car and you can sell it. The guy after you doesn't need to subscribe to the same battery. They can get a, an improved battery or they can stay with the same type of battery. It's basically a service. It's like a higher mm-hmm. octane. Mm-hmm. Now, you're right that you need a certain level of standardization, but it's not across cars. It's for the life of that car. I can put better and better battery technology inside the same size of pack. And a standard pack form because it fits in everybody's car. It fits in that car. Now, you can have multiple types of battery cells inside. So, for example, in that pack, five years from now, we can put 200 miles if we want to, or we can fill it up with half space and still be 100 miles of of a pack, but it will be half half the price. You get $5,000 rebate. It, that, that ability you've, you've seen today, imagine the, if you open your wireless phone at home, there's a pack inside, but if you, really, if you sort of scratch the plastic around it, you open it up, it's three double A's or three triple A's or whatever they put in, inside your phone. It's the way this, the industry standardized. They took the A, double A, triple A, and they packed it in different form factors. Same thing happens here. You have a module, and it can be wrapped in different forms. You said that the auto industry doesn't quite understand your model, and that some people talk about this as, as bold and visionary and exciting, and some people say it's a little too far out there that, that it might, um, you know, it could be a big hit or it right. could, be, could be a flop. So, so which do you think it's going to be? Yeah, it's, it, it's fun. So I think it's funny that it, it's a, um, when, when I wrote this as a paper, I never thought I'm actually going to do this as a business. So on paper, this was a, an idea, and it was a great idea uh, at a time. Um, I, I handed it over to a lot of different people, and, and most of them were politicians and business people. And uh, sort of the common reaction I got was, this, you know, it's great that the young generation is thinking about these problems, and they move on. Uh, one actually took the paper to experts. That was Shimon Peres, the president of Israel. And he handed it out. I didn't know, but he got it from me on a Thursday. By Sunday, he got three opinions from different experts. And they all said the same thing. This idea is crazy, never going to happen. Um, he called me that, that evening and said, I need you to come to my office. And his assistant told me that because all three said it's crazy and none of them said, yeah, we know how to do it. It's been done before. He said, finally, somebody's pushing the envelope. Now, um, I was on a panel, I think it's documented, with three different car experts less than a year ago who said, um, and these were all from big OEMs, or, you know, people who make 10 million cars, um, and they said, you know, never, you'll never see a car go on, on switchable batteries. It's too risky. One of them actually went to the extent of uh, proposing to the audience that they should uh, Google lithium and water. And I, I proposed uh, that they should Google gasoline and match. Um, but... <laughs> The, the, the same guy said, it's never going to happen, never going to be able to build this thing up, uh, never going to run. We have, we have four taxis in Tokyo that have been going for the last 75 days. They've been doing 10,000 miles nonstop. We found out that uh, battery autonomy is actually longer than bladder autonomy for drivers. <laughs> And these cars just go. I mean, they go and go and go. And finally, at some point, um, you're going to see, you know, s- some of these car executives are going to have to come there into a station which we, is glass window. So you can actually see that there's no person coming underneath the car and doing something. It's just a machine. It's two machines interacting. It's a car and a robot. And say, okay, it's working. I mean, 
we can argue as long as we want whether it's going to work or not, but eventually it's going to be proof. In 100 days, you're going to come to Israel. I'll pick you up in an airport, in an electric car. The airport is not in the center of Tel Aviv. I'll drive you either to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. We're going to have fun. We'll drive back and forth between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv if we want to. Switch a battery. Mm-hmm. I'll take you to dinner. We'll plug the car into one of the charge spots in the street. Then I'll drive you back to the airport. And that network will work. And it's 100 days away. Do those charge stops uh, exist? I mean, four yeah. taxis in Tokyo is one thing, but having the infrastructure and all Char- the other pieces we in have, place? We have a few thousands of charge spots in the ground in Israel already. We've, we've, uh, but how many cars on the street? None, because you can't, you see, just like cell phones, you can't put a cell phone until you put the towers, right? But we're, we're building now the switch stations. We're digging. And the, the, the biggest problem with putting stuff in the ground is permits. I mean, it's just terrible. Yeah. You, and, and Breaking are, concrete is expensive. They're municipal level. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's a pain. You've got to deal with every single city, and they all want something from you, right? Like, you've got to clean up the park if you're putting... You're trying to clean up my city? No, you've got to pay for cleaning up my parks. Um, it's, we're, we're dealing with it, and it's, a, it's an infrastructure project. But um, the, the chart spots are in. The switch stations are going into the ground. We're starting a technical trial. So the first trial is basically 50 cars, and they'll be driving before the end of the year. 50 cars with our drivers, with our people. They'll be running around uh, all of Israel and testing all kinds of, of different driving patterns. And which car platform? Is this going to be the Nissan, that, that's Renault? The Renault? It's the Renault Fluence, which is a beautiful car. I mean, everybody's amazed by that car because you go into a car that is basically um, what you'd expect from a very high-end luxury sedan because... You, you, you know what we connect in our minds with luxury sedan is you press the pedal and it just accelerates like a bat out of hell because you, you got this big engine, but you hear nothing because they worked really hard to mask the noise. In you know, Infinity, Lexus, yeah. you, you name yeah, Audi, it's right? It's the it's the spaceship car everybody wants, and you get into an electric car and you get that same experience. You press the pedal and it just goes. It's media torque. It's like from remember your golf cart experience. Now multiply the engine by about 50, right? That's what you get. The motor is about 50 times stronger. And you get that experience, and there's no noise. And, uh, and so first thing you say, wow, this car must be expensive. Then you hear that it's cheaper than the gasoline car you drove into the uh, visitor center. And most people say, well, where do I sign up? One thing that is expensive is a switching station, which I believe is about a million dollars a pop. How the, how's the economics of that going to work to invest in a, to put many million-dollar switching stations out there, and they're going to be used by how many cars? Uh, Let me defy expensive for a second. Define Israel needs 70 stations to cover the geography of the country with a switch station every 25 miles on every route that you can take through the country. So 70 stations cover the... By the way, this is not a phenomenon that's just Israel. If you think of Israel sort of like a cell phone cell, it's the Bay Area. So imagine the Bay Area would be covered with about 70 to 100 stations. Every 25 miles you would go, there'll be a station, right? So that cost of that project, 70 of them, is $70 million, mm-hmm. right? Add to it public chart spots, add to it a, a corporation that needs to run this, a sales office operation. It's $150 million. That's one week of gasoline for the, for the state of Israel. One week of gasoline. So seven days of gasoline usage by the country today pays for infrastructure that gets the country off of gasoline forever. 
Now, the same number applies to the U.S. We may be off by two days. So it might be five days or nine days. But imagine for what we spend on gasoline in the U.S. in a week, which is about 7 to $8 billion, we can cover 10 corridors that span the entire U.S. Corridor is San Diego to Seattle. And the only question you should ask is why not? Because that's not expensive. That's one week of gasoline. Let's talk broadly about the EV uh, sector. Um, how many EVs are there worldwide today? And what do you think the adoption rate will be for various flavors and types of uh, electric vehicles from, from various uh, manufacturers? Well, I know there were 1,067 Teslas on day of the IPO. Um, and they're great cars. Um, there, we have a few. Um, I know we put an order, and I think that's the thing that sort of turned light bulbs on. We, our first order to Renault was 100,000 cars. Um, I think it's one of the largest, if not the largest, order for a single car from a single maker from a single buyer in very, very long time. Now, we have a number of these 100,000 orders out, and the, most people don't understand. We can't make back the money on our infrastructure if we don't get that many cars on the road. We believe there's going to be a normal adoption curve. So in the beginning, there'll be only early, early adopters. I mean, the, there are people who would buy this who are the first ones who had an iPhone, the first ones who had a Prius, the first ones who had a solar panel on their roof. They're not looking at the economics. They're not afraid to be first. Actually, they like to be first. That part of the coal attraction. And yeah. so there's a group like that, and they're signing up in Israel. We're signing up of consumer side about seven, 800 uh, a month for the last four or five months. We have... If this was a dealership, we'd have the largest dealership on earth. Um, but industry-wide, I mean, there's some numbers out there. Credit Suisse says 330,000 by 2020. City says a million. Um, Deloitte actually believes that there's a million early majority, enough to really move mass adoption in the United States, who are motivated by the appeal of getting off oil and buying an EV, more than just the niche Prius buyer. I think that... Um, you asked, if you'd asked the same people back in the year 2000... Um, how many MP3 players would be around by 2010? They tell you about the same numbers, about 700,000 MP player, MP3 players. Um, I, I asked people, I was at Apple in 1995, and my project was canceled because we used this technology called Internet Browsers. <laughs> and uh, the penetration rate by the end of the decade was 15% to homes, and so our project was canceled. Um, most people project with linearity. What they forget is that the entire acceptance model is an S-curve with tipping points. When an electric car is cheaper than a gasoline car, tipping point one happens. When an electric car is cheaper than a three-year-old used car, boy, that's real tipping, right? When a, an electric car is cheaper than $10,000, right? When a big sedan, with an SUV, when you get a, an electric SUV under $10,000 for purchase, Nobody buys another SUV on gasoline. When you get a Chinese car coming in to the global market that is electric on our model at under $5,000, remember the Nokia 6100? That, that in, nondescript phone that everybody got? That's the equivalent, right? When that happens, all hell breaks loose. Now, how far are you from these tipping points? All these tipping points which I've specified will happen before 2020. Every single one of them will happen before 2020. Some of them will happen before 2015. Now, 
You tell me how many $5,000 SUVs will the market accept in the U.S.? Because I can tell you, nobody buys a $20,000 SUV that goes on gasoline when there's a $5,000 electric SUV that's faster, cleaner, and cheaper in the market. One thing that won't happen by 2015 is the deployment of the, some of the electrical infrastructure, the grid infrastructure, some of the smart meters that needs to happen to make way for mass adoption of electric vehicles. We, we, um, we install two chart spot, one at home, one at work. Our installation procedure for the, home, for the uh, work side has now gotten us to about 15 minutes install time. We know how to get into a parking lot at an Intel or a Google or a Yahoo or you name it, install the entire parking lot overnight. Um, we know how to, our, our, my, my team, some of them are sort of going like this right now, um, need to install a battery switch system in two days. So from the moment a hole in the ground till the moment it's a battery switch system, it needs to be two days. Why? Because we're going to need to deploy 10,000 of them across the U.S. And so they know at some point we're going to, somebody will turn on the light. Somebody will turn on the light in, in, uh, in D.C. and say, we can get off oil at seven days of gasoline. Okay, tell them to do it. Right? At some point we're, we're going to prove it. And then, you, and then suddenly after years of waiting, the project will need to happen in three months. Right? And... We're going to need to deploy these in thousands over, you know, in, in th- three months or six months or whatever it is. Because the Chinese did it in six months. And they do everything in six months in China. So let's, let's talk about China. I mean, China in many ways is trying to leapfrog over the internal combustion engine and own the era. If you read Thomas Friedman, own the era of the electric uh, vehicle. Right. Uh, tell us about what, what you see there in terms of the adoption right. of both China as a manufacturing base where we're going to be buying this technology batteries and perhaps the whole car from China. They, they read the book on how America built the middle class in the 50s. It was called Detroit. And they're doing exactly the same thing. I mean, if you look at what China's done, some of the things are, are quite phenomenal. I mean, we all think of Chinese cars as something you wouldn't buy, right? GM, in the first six months of this year, has actually sold more cars in China than they did in the U.S. They're making G- a lot more money there, too. GM, right. And the number one selling car, by the way, is an $8,000 car. $8,000. Tata is selling a $2,500 car. Everybody's trying to compete with them by putting a $3,000 or $4,000 car. Now, if you can make a $3,000, $4,000 car, and granted, it doesn't have all the safety and everything you have in the U.S., but add $1,000 for all the safety stuff, right? So you got a $5,000 car. You take out the engine and everything else, that's $1,000, you got just the shell of the car, $4,000, and you add to it a drivetrain, electric drivetrain, made in China. That's a $7,000 car. By the way, China, um, we, keep, we keep talking about how we own all the patents and the IP and they copy it. 99% of the power electronics PhDs in the world are Chinese. 99%. Right? Um, magnets, batteries, you name it. I mean, these, it's, it's all happening in China. Why? Because... You know, that's where you make iPhones and iPads and all that stuff. And lithium technology went there and, and power electronics went there. And so um, when you're looking at what China is going to do, China is strategic about it. They thought about it long and hard. And then over a week, they basically came in and said, okay, everybody who buys an electric car, you get $9,000 from the government. You start with the taxis. You start with the government vehicles. So you guys, we expect you to buy a car uh, that is electric. Why? Because it costs 
in their minds, it will cost about $8,000 to make the car, another eight to $9,000 to make the battery, they'll give you half, right? And when you give somebody a cheap car, they'll buy it. Then they came in and said, we're going to put infrastructure in the top six cities. But they've offered it to 13 cities. So these guys are fighting over um, who's going to get the budget from the government. And they're running faster than the other guy because the budget's going to run. Then they came in and said, we're going to offer the same thing to consumers. Then they went into the car companies. They put 16 of them in one coalition. So imagine this is like putting GM and GE and Chrysler and uh, DuPont and Dow Chemicals, and every, everybody in the supply chain in one room and saying, you're all going to go electric vehicles. Now, we would call it un-American. They call it Chinese, right? And it works for them. Um, they do all these things, and in parallel, they went out and they bought, um, I think, order magnitude of um, $85 billion worth of oil wells. Went out and they bought oil wells in Russia, in Venezuela, and in Mexico that the government didn't have money to develop. So they gave them the money to develop the oil wells to build an oil reserve in the ground. They got dibs on that oil. So they've built their oil reserve. They just didn't build it in China. They built it in the ground. They did all that in the span of a few weeks. That's China. Now, why? Because they've realized we'll never build a better engine than um, what they built in Stuttgart or they built in Detroit. So why don't we skip over? We'll build a better electric motor because we do more electric motors than anybody else. You ask me the speed of adoption. China declared one day, one morning, that you cannot take a scooter into a city if it goes on gasoline. And they're building millions of electric scooters since then. They've taken the entire industry, and they're building millions of electric scooters. In a span of one year, the entire industry turned. That's China. And they're exporting them. They're not just for internal consumption. They're exporting them around the world. That's what we're facing. Shai Gassi is CEO of Better Place. He's my guest at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton here at this meeting of Climate One and Inforum. I'd like you to invite you to step up to the microphone if you'd like to ask a question after this one last question. So please uh, make your way to the microphone. Uh, we'll invite you to make a one-part one <laughs> brief comment or question, and I mean brief, and uh, we'll try to get through as, as many as possible here uh, after I ask Shai. Who's throwing obstacles in the way of this transition to electric vehicles? We've seen lots of, in Washington, lots of food fights between sectors, between different technologies. Who's, um, who's trying to put the brakes on this? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's putting the real brakes on it. Uh, you have to realize everybody wants to get off oil. I don't think anybody will, will throw a big funeral to the oil industry when it's done. Right in in uh, well, we saw that with, with BP, we saw there's a lot of British pensioners who actually rely for their pension on BP stock, and when that went down, uh, a lot of people in Britain, fixed pensioners, were affected by that. So it's, there's a lot of people. It's not just oil companies. There's people who are spending those dividends and, and benefiting from that stock. I I, I realize that you, you, they real. I think most of these pensioners realize they they're on a on non-sustainable plan right now. They just want to outlive the oil companies. Here, you know, here's the thing. I'm trying to tell you we're, we're going to get a car in the market that with the right infrastructure will have the gasoline equivalent of $1 a gallon. Right? And at some point it will go to half a dollar a gallon. Now, a $1 a gallon in the U.S. without the, any of the European taxes is equivalent to a sub-$10 barrel. 
right? BP can't drill another hole in the ground if there is a future price of $10 a gallon, a $10 barrel. Not a single hole in the ground because they will never be able to recover the oil fast enough to pay for that drilling. So I'm telling you, this is not, it's not a theory. It's almost certain that we will happen within the next decade, that price point. Now, all these pensioners are betting that I'm wrong. Because at some point, we're going to get to a very high tip. The price is going to go really, really high. And it goes down, and one day it doesn't come back. It just goes down. So you have to time it perfectly. You have to get out of BP or Shell or Exxon or Chevron just at that one last tip. Now, you, don't, you never know when that is, so most people actually write it all the way down. And uh, BP is also the acronym of your company. Are you thinking about changing the name? or You're not going to be the, another BP, right? Um, you're not going to be the new BP. I, look, I don't think BP... You know, I, I'll say something most people probably don't um, you know don't want to hear I don't think BP is evil I think that um, it's real it, you know it could have happened to almost any company that has drilled a hole 25,000 feet uh, into the uh, the bottom of the ocean it's just a crazy idea right it's it's a crazy idea to drill a hole 25,000 feet underwater 25,000 feet into the the bottom of that that ocean and think that we're going to drill hole after hole after hole, and nothing bad will ever happen. Now, Tony Hayward is, is not an evil guy, right? He's, he's just caught in, you know, it, it happened to him. And he keeps saying, I wish it happened to somebody else. But the reality is, it was a non-sustainable, it's just non-sustainable business model to keep thinking that, you know, we're going to drill one after the other, and nothing will ever happen. Shai Gassi is CEO of Better Place. First question, please. Hi, uh, my name is Peter Gisela. And in the introduction to a book called Startup Nation, the whole chapter dealt with your experience in Israel. I was wondering if you could comment on Dan's, Don Sinor's book in relation to the thesis on national service or military service in Israel and how that has advanced the economy of Israel in the last 15 years. Thank you. Well, the, the first thing you got to remember is most people actually only read the first chapter, and as a result of that, they think the entire book is about us. So you're just, you just broke the myth. Um, it's a fantastic. If you haven't read Startup Nation, it's, a, it's truly a great book. Um, I think that there, there are um, a lot of different factors that um, affect Israel um, and its innovation cycle, but I think if you look back into the generations, there's clearly uh, the first generation of Israel's uh, innovation, high-tech innovation, came as a result of, uh, of military innovation. So it came as a result of Survivor. Uh, my dad, who's part of that first generation, uh, went to the Israel Institute of Technology, Technion, left in, in 1972 as an electric engineer, a, a really young electric engineer, goes back to the um, goes back to the service. His first task is to build a cellular network across the Sinai Peninsula, which is three times the size of Israel today, um, and builds that network. And on that network, the entire communications of the uh, um, 1973 war is conducted. Um, imagine today you'd give an engineer, a single engineer, one year out of college, the task of building a network across the a network nobody's ever built across a, uh, a landscape that 
It's basically desert. Uh, and, and expect that thing to actually run a war on it. I mean, that's what Israel was about. You, you found one guy, you said, okay, you go do this, and he did it. And then when he comes out, for the next 20 years, he works in the industry. So they export that technology through Tadiran and LB and all these other companies that came out of Israel. And then he mentors me because we started four companies together. So mm-hmm. I was the third generation. I came out of the same school. But when I, I came out, I didn't think about, um, you know, what do you do for your country? I thought about what startup do you start? And I started four of them after my military service. Um, I think today's generation, the fourth generation as I called it, are really inspired by what we do with, with Better Place in Israel. And a lot of these kids are coming back and saying, what do I do that really makes impact? What do I do that's changing the world and changing my country? Uh, and that's sort of the Jewish guilt that got me back into it. I, I wrote this as an idea, not as a company. And President Paris basically said, if, if you can save your country and save the world, you've got to quit your job. Um, and two days later, I lost a job. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the reality is that, you know, that's sort of, uh, that's the definition of how you, you, you grow a country. You grow, you grow it layer after layer after layer, and the old guys have to mentor the young guys. Sometimes losing a job can be the best thing that happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, that job, for sure. <laughs> um, next question, please. Hi, Shai. Thanks for coming today. Really appreciated your talk. Um, in the... Your talk, you talk a lot about consumers. Mm-hmm. Have you done any work with industry like UPS or FedEx? Like, I would think they would be the first adopters of a technology like this where there is an infrastructure cost to be shared amongst all players, and then it would eventually be adopted by consumers. Yeah, we looked at, post, at postal service and, uh, and package delivery services in general and not in a generic sense. Uh, there's, there are a couple problems with that. One, it's, it's too, too easy of a task. It doesn't project well on the rest of the population. Uh, main reason is uh, these, these trucks actually do end up in the depot at the end of the day, and they get charged at the depot, and all of them travel the same distance every day. And so when you, sh- when you show that to consumers, they say, yeah, of course, it works for the postman. It doesn't work for me. Second problem is they always show you the number of people, the trucks they got in the fleet, but they forget to tell you that they switch them over 20 years. And so of that entire number, only 5% switch every year. And so it's a very long and arduous process to actually get any volumes. We went the exact opposite direction. Instead of picking the easiest fleet, we picked the hardest fleet, and that's taxis. Um, and the, the, the amazing effect is imagine if you have 1,000 taxis in New York, you get 30,000 people to go through that experience every day. It's like a, a mobile dealership, Right. Um, if, you have, if you had 10,000 taxis in the U.S., you'd get a quarter million people to go through an electric car every day. And that's sort of our, our, one of our goals, to actually go get that kind of a number. Now, that's a hard task because you're putting a car that will need to go, you know, about, the average taxi in the U.S. is about 60,000 miles a year. But once consumers see a car going 60,000 miles a year on electric, they say, I can do my 12,000 miles easy. And that's, we, we're always been crazy. We go after the toughest tasks, and we go from there to prove that, you, you know, whatever you do, Mr. Consumer, can be done, because this is a superset. Reason is we don't believe we have time. So we didn't want to go for the easy task. We want to go for the harder task. Thank you. Shai Gassi is CEO of Better Place. We're discussing climate change and electric vehicles at Climate One and in Forum. Next question, please. Hi. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm most curious where the power is going to come from. Uh, Greg touched on it for a second with his question, um, and you responded by saying it takes a day or two or overnight or whatever we can put up the infrastructure, but at the end of the day, we still are plugging more and more things in. 
every day and electricity just um, you know the supply may not be there so what's what's the answer you know what, so, where does it come from so let me start by giving you the data of what the supply picture uh, would be so what, what's the demand what's the real demand because we we think uh, it must be really big um, if you converted all the cars in the U.S. Um, to electric cars, every single one of them, you'd add somewhere between about 10% of electricity demand, which will mostly come off-peak. So DOE has actually stated that we can, with the off-peak power we have right now, we can drive more than 200 million cars in America without a single addition to the grid. Right? Not, not even smart metering. Just 200 million cars could go on what we got in extra capacity overnight. Now, we don't say, let's do that. What we're basically saying is, one, when we go electric, we open to a menu of generation capacities. Better place will buy renewables at any point in time. So we as an operator basically say, we have to match supply and demand, and we do so by buying a long-term power purchase agreement uh, with a clean supplier, renewable supplier. Uh, in Denmark, give you an example, we're going to drive the entire country of Denmark on about 600 windmills. Uh, in Israel, we're trying to do it on solar. There's still an issue of cable from the desert to the center of the country. But if the cable we put in, in place, you can create effectively a virtual oil field in the middle of the desert, an unused land, and drive. And the same, by the way, here, here in the U.S. Um, we don't get religious. So in France, these cars are going to go on nuclear power, but the reactors are already there, and they're going all night. And so we're not adding to anything. It's just going. So you just consume that power. The beauty with electric cars, you have a menu. And you can choose what you want to consume. It's all better than oil. Even coal is better than oil when it's burned in a, in a power plant. Instead of being burned in your small little engine and having the rest of the car try and cool down the engine to not blow up. Yeah. Even coal is better than, than oil. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Uh, thanks for coming. You got some great ideas. I've seen your website. You know, really nice design and... Um, but I do have a question because, you know, I have a box full of these cell phones in my, in, in my closet because each time the battery goes bad, I go down. And they can't just replace the battery because of, there's interoperability issues between the old phone, which is a couple of years old, and the new one. So, you know, I'm going to get, get a box of 10, 10 of these things in my closet. So what, what are you guys, you know, thinking about as far as making the interoperability between not only you know, a bunch of Motorola phones or, you know, or, you know, your cars, but the different manufacturers, because everybody has a different plug, a different, I mean, you look at the batteries that go in current model cars, you go down to Costco, and there's about 15, 20, you know, a couple dozen of different batteries, all different sizes and shapes. So Thank you. for yeah, your so thing, you know, work, it's got to be all the same. So, so you got to understand that your phone was, was designed with obsolescence in mind, right? <laughs> yeah. So they, they want you to replace the phone every two years. That's a chance to add up a data package to your cell phone uh, contract and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, I think w- with cars, it's the other way around. We want, we, nobody, will put a car, nobody will buy a car that will only be used for two, three years. Um, and so we know that we're going to have a life cycle uh, with the car and, and with a battery. Now, um, there is a, if you want, a almost like an operating system that sits between the two. There's a, a vehicle management system and a battery management system, and the two talk to one another. And it's not incomprehensible that you will have sort of a virtual machine that will know how to talk to multiple different types of generations, if you want, of that battery management system. 
Now, they all require tests so that when you put a new generation of the battery management system, you'll need to test that with the car. That's part of what we do, but same, same tests actually happen when you put diesel uh, or you put you know, ver- versions of Euro 3, Euro 4, Euro 5 into, into the same engine. You test those things, and you see that it would work with, with all types. Now, um, what we can seem to get right now is standardization across multiple makers. And we never said we will need to. Right? Our battery management is done in a way that we can have in the same battery switch system, same station, multiple types of batteries. And depending on the car that comes in, we take the same type of battery that came out of the car from our storage, and we put that one back in the same spot. And we can have multiple types in storage, and it's not even multiplying by the same number with the number of cars because statistics help us. You're not going to get the same car coming in again and again and again if there are three or four types. Now, we believe that down the road, as volume happens, the industry will, will use tiering as it does today. I mean, a lot of the hybrid cars actually use the Toyota hybridization engine, or the, the gear, for example. From, why? Because once you've tested something and got it to volume, the other makers don't have a reason not to use it. Actually, they have a disincentive from, from inventing their own. Now, I can't tell you that I know who's going to lead it and who's going to be the first to use a battery from another maker because today they all say, you know, never. But I've seen never. Never is kind of short in the car industry. It's about three to four years. Okay? Thank you. Next question. Hi. You, um, you cite with oil, the big problem being that we're running out, but the other big problem is that it's polluting a tremendous amount. With the electric car model... There is still a waste stream. The batteries do run out. They do die. And as you just mentioned in the last response about evaluating the life cycles of products, what is is Better Place doing about the life cycles of batteries and as the batteries evolve, the different recycling techniques and such that will be used will change. So how are you approaching that portion of this big picture? So so our our batteries are... um our, in the entire management model is a cradle cradle model. So 80% of what's in a battery goes into another battery afterwards. But I want to put you in perspective. It's, it's really important people keep perspective on, on you know, what we're dealing with here. Um, a battery has about 2,000 life cycles before it gets to be about 80% of what it was in the early days. So a 100-mile battery becomes an 80-mile battery after 2,000 cycles, which is about 200,000 miles. In the car industry, it's called a dead battery at that point because it reached only 80 miles. It's not within warranty anymore. Um, in reality, what happens is it's an 80-mile battery, right? There's always a student that would take a 20% discount on a per-mile basis 10 years out and say, you know, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do, you know, a couple of switches more in my life. Give me that 80-mile 80, 80 battery. And so there's always a market that goes down. At 60 miles, we send it to Hawaii. If you don't tell them, they think it's a full-island battery. At, at 40 miles, it goes to India, right? It, and it, in India, most people don't even fill 40 miles today. So that, that battery can have a very, very long life, and it's not going to be a long life somewhere outside the car. It's actually in cars, car after car after car. Every time you go through a cycle, you get a, you know, somewhere between um, 100 and 200,000 miles on it. So a million miles later, you're going to recycle and 20% of that material of, of the battery 
will go into real recycling. The rest will go into another battery. Now, let me put that in perspective. A million miles at 20 miles per gallon, 25 miles per gallon, is about 40,000 gallons of gasoline. Put that next to about 10 gallons worth of material, 40,000 gallons of gasoline, 10 gallons of solid material. Now burn the gasoline. That's the difference in pollution you get. Okay? Keep that image in mind. You understand why we're doing good for this world. Shai Agassi is CEO of Better Place. We're discussing electric vehicles at this meeting of Climate One and Inforum. Next question, please. So, hi, I'm Ryan Shelby from UC Berkeley. So I'm one of those students that might take you up on that offer of, of that cheaper battery. But um, it seems that Better Place's goal is to actually provide an alternative transportation option for, for consumers here in the U.S. versus oil. And so my question is, why not choose, to choose public transit instead of having more individual cars? So I was, I was wondering if you could comment on the individual cars versus the public transit option. I, the, only, the only problem I have with your question is the word instead. See, if everybody would go on public transport, life would be fantastic. The problem is, the more people go on public transport, the more people go on cars. Because the more people go on public transports, the less congested the cars get, the more people want to get into their cars. And so what you get is a very interesting um, feedback loop. I, I know the numbers for Israel. I don't know the numbers for the Bay Area. But in Israel, there was always a terrible train system. And so they went out and they put all this money into the train system because obviously if we get a good train, congestion will be diminished on the roads. So five years later, we now have ten times the number of people on the train system as we did before the the budget allocation to the train system. And there are still 200,000 new cars, the same number of cars added to the road every year. Why? Because the more people went on the train, the less congestion was on the road, the more people wanted to get into a car. Now... If I could find a way to move everybody to public transport, I'd need to do a tenth of the job. But you also have to remember public transport is not a solution to every problem. The most amazing number most people don't believe in, but you can check me, um, the, average number of, the average number of grams of CO2 per passenger on a bus is bigger than the average number of CO2 per passenger on the bus on a per-mile basis in a car. Because the bus system has to go all day, every day, in a big, big bus. It starts somewhere empty. It ends somewhere empty. It peaks in the middle, which is when all of us were in the bus, in hot day in the middle of the day with 50 people in a crowded bus. But it really goes for a very long time on, a ga- on the edges of the Gaussian curve of population. And in those moments, it pollutes way, way, way more than the value it gives to the system. So even buses are not a solution. The best solution is get everybody to go on the bus, make it an electric bus with switchable batteries, and then you solved everything. Here in San Francisco, we do have electric buses. That's true. Uh, uh, next question. Uh, Shia, thank you very much for coming out. Continuing on in the student line, my name is Chris Gassman. I'm from Carnegie Mellon. And... Uh, Question about the challenges you guys are facing. You started off mentioning a few of them that are somewhat external, the, um, the tipping points, the permits, things like that. I was wondering if you could speak to some of the challenges you're facing inside the company, as a startup, growing company, whatnot. Just what's it like? Um, I'll give you the numbers, and you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out on your own. In 2009, we've installed uh, one battery switch system. In 2010, we were going to install 10. In 2011, we have to install 100. 
In 2012, we have to install about 1,000. In 2013, if we get the U.S. to wake up, we need to install 10,000 just in the U.S. Now, if you imagine this, this company's capacity is directly linearly proportioned to revenues. Right? So the more switch systems we put, the more our capacity to grow the number of cars increase. So if we're doing five, five or six incremental 10Xs year after year, and we only want to double revenues. That means we're going to double revenues for 15 years in a row. Never happened before. Um, but even to increase capacity of infrastructure 10x, five years in a row, never happened before. Now, the challenges of that, execution challenges, scaling, mentally growing by 10x in a period of a year, and then doing it again the next year, and again the next year, and again the next year, and again the next year, that thought is, you know, there's no book, there's nowhere to read, there's, there's nobody who's ever tried to do that. And the funny thing is when we say that, everybody says, you know, there's, you're crazy. I said, no, we're, we're tipping a $3 trillion a year market, $3 trillion a year called miles. Everybody here buys miles, and the aggregate of these $40 uh, credit swaps um, are, is a $3 trillion market, which is going to be tipped, I believe, in the span of 10 to 15 years. So how do you do that? There's never been a book on that. We, you know, we may be doing some right things. We may be doing some wrong things. The, the idea is absolutely right, and the technology-wise, we've proven, uh, and we're continuing to prove. So the reality is this is now a big execution challenge more than anything else. I just got the five-minute warning, uh, so let's try to rip through a couple of last ones here quickly. Yes, sir. Hi, Mr. Gassi. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm another student from the University of Michigan. Um, really believe in the business model. Um, I'd like to switch a little bit and talk about the network side mm-hmm. of, the, of the business proposition that you have. Um, you know, Israel, Denmark, these are places with just one utility, governments that support. Denmark has 100 utilities. Oh, I'm sorry. One main utility, right? Dong. Let's get to the point. Sorry, we got five minutes, so let's... How do you, um, in the U.S., how do you propose to interact with all the utilities who may not want to share information, have security concerns, may not want to give up the margin? How does Better Place plan to... We, we believe that we're, we're selling a fundamentally different product than what the utilities are selling. Utilities are selling kilowatt hours. We're selling miles. We buy kilowatt hours. Um, there are regulated entities that actually sell kilowatt hours at a certain price uh, under certain conditions. We're going to be their biggest customer. We're also going to be the most comfortable customer they got. We're willing to take intermittent power. So if they got a windmill that goes on, off, on, off, on, off, you can't sell that to somebody watching ESPN at 2 o'clock at night, but you can sell it to us because we got, we got batteries. So, you know, whenever you got, bring it on. Um, we're, we don't see this as a market in which the cars are sold to the utilities or directly connect to the utilities necessarily. We see this as a market where somebody, an operator, has to sit in the middle and translate all these things to an easy-to-consume product called miles, electric miles, to the consumer. Much like you don't see Boeing selling airplanes to airports. There's an airline in the middle, right? So we believe that at the end of the day, somebody's going to need to come back to the utilities, and it's probably the regulator, the PUC, uh, and say, you've got to sell this guy. He's like a big movie theater, right? He's, you know, it's, he's buying power. You've got to sell power. And if you want to sell direct power to people who want to buy a fixed battery car, so be it. It's okay. It's fair. Thank you. Next question. Hi, Alexandra Eichenbaum. Um, you were just talking about selling that wind power because you have batteries. Mm-hmm. You have reserves in Bolivia and Afghanistan. 
But if you're talking about putting batteries all over the world, there's only so much recycling. What happens next? So, so that, the lithium myth is one of the biggest myths that have been propagated on this world. Lithium is one of the 35 most common elements in nature, um, and there's very little of it in the battery. So if you take the Nissan Leaf, $32,000 car uh, with a 25-kilowatt-hour battery, there's only $250 worth of lithium in that car. So it's less than 1% of the overall cost of the car. Let's say we're going to get a million of these cars in one year, right? And we said there's a goal in the U.S. to get to a million, which is quite funny, but we're going to get to a million cars by 2015. I don't believe in that number. I think it's it's the most low-balled number I've ever heard. Um, But those million cars will need $250 million worth of lithium at today's technology, not even an improvement. That's about three hours of oil. Um, The reserves that we know today that have been surveyed already in the ground can supply enough lithium for 3 billion cars. It's well into the 23rd century, even with China. Oh, it's... It's not us. It's the, it's That's the world. That's assuming the price of lithium, though, doesn't go up because of the scarcity. I mean, that could go up. Let's, let's, uh, let's get to the last question. All right. Make, uh, it, make it snappy. Okay, David Ochman, Technological University of Berlin. So, um, based on the premise of uh, technological progress, I think we can assume that electric, electronic mobility is probably like the future of our mobility. So, uh, in 100 days, you will have your 100,000 um, cars on the road. No, 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 no. The no? first. Okay, let's say in one year you have 100,000 uh, cars on the road. In two years, there's a market for customers, and in three years, we have level three charging stations that can charge my battery in 10 minutes. So the question remains, do we have two standards in three years, or are you competing with uh, plug-in chargers, or do you see um, two systems that are not compatible on the same market? So, so let me be very, very clear. One, we're competing with oil. So the bar today is a gas station, five minutes in out, right? Anything below five minutes is convenient. Anything above five minutes is not convenient. Um, we believe that to do five-minute charging, and I, just physics, right? So you're a student. I don't know. You're a physics student? All right, so you, did you take physics 101? All right. So physics 101 teaches us that electricity behaves much like any other flow. Uh, the, more, the bigger bucket you want to put, right? And the shorter time you got, you need a bigger hose, right? So um, to put a a battery that will take, and everybody's talking about this magic battery that will do 300 miles, and we can fill it up in five minutes. A 300-miler battery that can fill up in five minutes needs the cable that goes into the Empire State Building to fill it up. Now, I don't know how many people will actually pick up the Empire State Building feeder line and plug it into their car with two kids in the back. Um, (laughs) But if you, if you did that, that would be quite a, a physics experiment. Now, um, if you, No, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying physics is tough. You can argue with a lot of things, but with physics, it's kind of hard to argue. So, Why are there so many charging stations? They're charging stations because the equivalent of, um, of a, an electric car is not out there. What you have out there are electric vehicles. I have two electric vehicles. The reason they're called vehicles is they're like a car, but they're not. Um, and the, the thing that differentiates between them and the car right now is you went 70, 80 miles, and you got to stop for five, six hours. That's not a car. We say that you have to get something that is a car, which means it's convenient. I drove 100 miles, 
And I can keep on going after a minute or two. That's what my taxi does today, 59 seconds. Now, when you have that as a new bar, right? An electric car that can keep going after 59 seconds, and a car maker comes in and tells you, I have a better idea. You should stand at a station for 10 minutes, try and sell that. All right? That would be interesting. We've got to wrap it there. I just have one last question, uh, which is we're asking all of the informed speakers this year, your 60-minute pitch for how to change the world and make this 60-second trans- pitch. Six, so 60 seconds. <laughs> Not 60 minutes. You guys came here for two hours, right? We'll bring in food. No, 60-second pitch for how to make this happen. I think that if we look at the problems that we're facing today, in, in, uh, especially in energy um, and in, in climate, um, we can no longer try and reduce by a certain percentage by a certain year. The mistake that we did going into Copenhagen is we try to cut by a certain percentage going into uh, some year way in the future. We have to start changing in a sense of abolishment. We, we have to build light bulbs that have no heat. We have to build windows that lose no, uh, no air conditioning. We have to build cars that have no tailpipes. And then we, we have to make them cheaper for the consumer to pick on their own without an edict, without forcing them, just by saying it's cheaper for you than what you buy today. When we get these kinds of uh, zero-waste product and they're cheaper for the consumer, we will, we will solve this by the power of the commons, by the power of the people, not by the power of the edict. Better Place is just one example. It will get 20% off the CO2 that we, we emit when we're done. It will get us off oil. It will free the money to go do social change with the money we burn today or we spill into the Gulf. And when we're done, everybody will say it was trivial. Why did he get so excited about it? Our thanks to Shai Agassi, CEO of Better Place, for coming today to this meeting of Climate One and Inforum. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>